Today I'm interviewing Dr. Shantina Sorrells. Shantina is the Chief Program Officer at Orangewood Foundation, which is a nonprofit that helps almost 2,000 youth annually prepare for independent adulthood. As a foster kid herself, you're going to hear that she is an enthusiastic and inspiring voice taking the lead in creating change and success in our community by serving and advocating for foster youth. She's also passionate about equality and justice and determined to change statistics such as the one that only 3% of foster youth go on to graduate from a four-year college. There's a lot of great takeaways in this interview about the power of persistence and belief in yourself and that you can make a difference, which is what Shantina is doing now in a big way. Enjoy the interview. You're listening to The Inspired Wave, stories of everyday heroines, real life inspiration. I'm your host, transformational coach and connection catalyst, CJ Rivard. Join me weekly to hear real life inspiration and tips for tackling your life's challenges. Each week you'll hear from a relatable woman who shares about her struggles and the tools she used to work through them. By being women of courageous action, vision, and ongoing evolution, each of us can create a ripple of positive impact. And together, we'll create a wave of change. Join us. So welcome everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Shantina Sorrells, and I'm really excited for this conversation. Welcome, Shantina. Thank you, so glad to be here. So everyone just heard a little bit about you, but if you could start us off by telling us where you're calling in from and maybe a little snippet of something we wouldn't see on your bio or website. Of course, I currently reside in Orange County, California. But the one thing that I think defines me and says a lot about me is I'm a native San Franciscan. So I was born and raised in the city, grew up in the city proper. And I think it shaped me into who I am. I have a little bit of a hippie spirit and really like to just explore and see so many things and learn so many things. And I love learning new cultures. So I think that tells you a lot about me just by saying that's where I grew up. Interesting. And I didn't know that not knowing San Francisco, that that would lead to all of those other things. So that's good to know. Thank you for sharing that. So you had, like many of our guests, a pretty challenging upbringing. Would you be able to start us with that? Because I know it really was formative to to where you are now. Absolutely. So for me, like, you know, many people in the world, home life was something that was a, a huge challenge. And At the age of five, I entered into the foster care system. I remained in the foster care system until I turned 18. Many foster youth, when leaving the foster care system, it's a wide known fact, actually leave with a trash bag. And that's kind of a norm with all of their belongings kind of shoved in it because the transition is so jolting. It it is so unplanned and unprepared for many youth that it really is something that one day you're in a home and the next day you're on your own. And I always say that I left with a leg up because I at least had a laundry basket. So I had a laundry basket with all of my belongings in it. And I actually had fundraised and taken some time to raise money. And I got on a Greyhound bus from Northern California. And I rode that bus down here to arrive at a college campus. And that really changed my life. 
It was able to open so many doors for me, but it was the scariest thing I had ever done all on my own with absolutely no support, not knowing anyone in the area, not knowing anyone who had gone to college before. So it was quite the journey. It it was a path for sure that I believe was meant for me, but I also every day of every moment was questioning what was I going to be able to do this for sure. So I have a question just from ignorance with foster care. If you age out of the system at 18, what happens to the young adults who are still in high school? That's a fantastic question. So a couple of things have changed since I left, which was that was 1997, quite some years ago. So one thing is the state of California has approved to extend foster care up until 21. However, it is a choice. The youth has to choose to, and many youth don't choose it because of many reasons but also they have to be in school or they have to be employed to remain in foster care. And sometimes given the trauma and the mental health things that come with living in foster care and how you got into foster care can prohibit that. So it's not a perfect situation or solution. However, for many foster youth that are still in high school, they can extend it as while they're completing high school. Thankfully, my birth date turning 18 was just three weeks before my high school graduation. So I was able to go to a friend's house and stay throughout that summer before I exited and left. But yes, that is not always the case for every youth that they have that support system or network. I just, I can't even picture at that age, that scary feeling of just being so completely alone. Do you think there was something kind of inborn in you or something about your upbringing that made you braver than a lot of kids or more resilient to like, first of all, to go to college because, you know, that isn't a guarantee. And I'm sure that was really hard right. with family support. What do, you, what do you think got you to that point? And through it? It's a very interesting question. And I've had that question a lot in my lifetime. And I still say if I could package it up in a pill, I would and I'd be a billionaire. But I don't think that there's a one perfect answer. I The answer that I've come to now that I can see looking back is there was, you know, inherently I enjoyed school. And so I think it was always my escape. It was my way out. So I enjoyed learning. I struggled because I didn't have the support at home. I maybe didn't have the access to the things I need. And so there was elements of it that were challenging just given my situation. But at the same time, I enjoyed learning. So I think that is one thing that is inherent that was a step up. But then I also, I had very wonderful people who stepped into my life in different roles and at different times. So whether it be a friend, whether it be a friend's parent, for some reason, all of my friends' parents loved me. <laughs> and so they just kind of took me in and that was always great. But then I had a teacher, you know, who also took me in. So, and I mean, these in many senses of the way, but just mentorship or just offering words of kindness or words of advice or words of support. And then my story of getting into college is a whole podcast on its own. So we won't even go too deep into that. But basically, there was a college admissions counselor who really put his neck out and did some things that I wouldn't expect every college admissions counselor would do. And he walked me through every single form. He was all the way down in Southern California and I was in Northern California. So via phone back then and walked me through every step of the way. And despite monumentous things happening throughout that process to where every turn, it felt like it was just going to like completely fall apart. 
he actually got permission and acceptance and went above and beyond to allow me the ability to make the request of being able to enter into college when I was literally steps behind most of the other students and my peers that I was entering with. Wow. Wow. That boy. Talk about someone being able to change the life of another person, which has a ripple because here you are now helping others, which we'll get to, but that's, that's incredible. Those few people along the way that really made it possible for you to get out of the thin cycle, I guess, of the the system. And I actually had the opportunity to tell him, which I think is even more important. Years later, we had lost touch and someone heard me talking about it and they're like, I know his family. And he lives in Hawaii somewhere now, totally off the grid. And like, so I had to write him a letter, (laughs) but I was able to tell him. And I think that was just the full circle of, of letting him know what an impact he made was a big deal. That's awesome. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Cut it out. All right. Let's go on to the next thing. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's remarkable. So you went to college. And at that point, did you know what you wanted to do? Were you a, a woman on a mission or did you just want to get out? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> so the answer would be, so I knew I wanted to work with people. I knew I wanted to help people. So I never changed majors. I actually, in high school, took a psychology course and was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I don't know what that means. So that's the no part. But like, this is what I want to do. I had started like a peer counseling thing at my high school. So I was already like, I want to do this somehow, some way. And so entering college, I knew that was it. Never changed my major. I definitely struggled. I did different jobs while I was there. I did like after school programming and I worked with kids in group living care and foster care. And I was like, okay, I know what I don't want to do now. (laughs) And so I was figuring out what I didn't want to do long before I figured out what I did want to do. And so through doing some of those jobs and finding my way, I actually wound up after I graduated, I moved to Maryland. One of my floor mates from college who was from there and I got a job in a pilot program and my supervisor was a master in social work. and she taught me about this whole other side of social work that I could do where I get to help people, but by looking at solutions and finding ways to do things differently and better. And it just kind of opened my eyes to a whole nother world. And from then on, I was a woman on a mission. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I would think. So you don't just help one person, but you look at the whole system and impacting hundreds and thousands of lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So then you were a woman on a mission and you went on and I know you got your PhD. So tell us, I guess, between, you know, college and your current job, was there anything formative or did you learn anything along the way that landed you where you are now? Absolutely. So yes, I had some amazing mentors, just like in my origin story from, you know, high school and undergrad, I had a lot of people who stepped into my life that I never expected. And so several of them from just different walks of life and never really knew. And so one thing is during my years when I returned, I lived with several families because for me, never having really seen a normal, stable family life was something that was still very foreign to me. And so I learned through mentorship, through them, just being a normal family. What does a day-to-day look like? Who washes the dishes? How do you argue without screaming? I mean, like really basic things that you wouldn't think and you would take for granted, like, but those are normal lessons. 
And so I think there was a lot of mentorship there that really, really impacted my life. And it came with extended family. And so you learn from other people, right? So that was a big, huge help for me. I got involved in a lot of different organizations. I became a former youth voice, which means I would go and represent and speak on behalf of foster youth. And it really taught me that while I had one experience and I can see through the data that my experience is common in the sense of like the trauma and the things I went through and the challenges, it's not common when it went to, I went into college and graduated because the statistics show that less than 10% of foster youth actually enroll in a four-year university, less than 1% graduate. So I knew that I'd beat the odds, quote unquote, but I didn't understand why, and that wasn't enough for me. So I wanted to do something different. So as I learned those things, I was like, I want to do different. I want to do more. I shouldn't be one out of 10. I want it to be 10 out of 10, if that's what they want. And so I think that as I learned more, it helped me shape and then helped me shape what's my place. I also recognized then I can't be the voice, right? I have to be representative But I have to understand only my experience. And I think that's one thing that gets tricky with lived experience is I'm not everyone, right? So I can only give you my perspective, but if I can listen well, and if I can hear others, and if I can amplify their voice, I can take all of our stories. And that's what really helped me land into program design and human-centered design is that if I want to build effective solutions and programs, I can't just go off of what I think. I really have to listen to those who are affected and impacted. And I really have to understand their perspective to build the best possible innovative solutions. So when you talk about human program design? Human-centered design. Okay. So that's what you do now. You're in charge of a lot of programming. What does that entail? How do you, like, how many people do you talk to or survey and... How do you figure out what that what that looks like? It's a fantastic question. So human-centered design is actually, I didn't create it or come up with it. It's actually a movement out there and it comes from the business world. And so they were really looking at solutions to make your consumers happy, right? Like how do you get your consumers to look at things? And so they started designing products from the human elements. So you think of Apple and all of those people who have designed things, right? And so our human services actually said, hey, wait a minute, why is that only for the business world? Why couldn't we do that over here? And so we have adopted those principles. And what it really is, it's kind of three different components. And you start with basically listening to your audience or what we really dig into is ideation. So you're really looking at what are the ideas out there? Which ones are viable? Are they the right fit? Is the Are these the things that are happening? And then you prototype, you try something out. And this has always been something that my field has been very wary on because you don't want to try things on humans who need, you know, help and support. But there's ways to do it to where it's not actually harmful or hurtful. And you can try things and evolve slowly in your programming. And then it's the implementation. So making sure you do it right and you do it well. So if you had all your ideas, you had all your information, a lot of people kind of stop there. But that implementation is making sure you sustain it and you build it quality and you make sure you have a long-term plan and then you share it with others. Because if I develop this world-class solution and I only keep it to myself, 
help this many people, very small amount, but if I can share that widely and tell people why it worked and how it worked and how to do it, that's when I can really help more folks. So what would you say your current innovative, life-changing program is that you're working on right now? Tell us about it. I am super excited to talk about our Youth Connected program. And what that really is, it's a foster family agency where we are working with families in the community and placing a foster youth in their home who is an adolescent or a teenager. And that is one of the biggest needs in foster care today. Many people, when they think of going into foster, they think of the little babies or the little toddlers, but our teenagers actually need homes as well. And so we work with those teenagers and we have built a state-of-the-art, beautiful home. We call it a dorm on the campus of a charter high school. And so our youth go to school all day right outside their front door and they're able to get STEAM-based, project-based learning right there in a state-of-the-art, top-ranked high school that is conducive to their needs. The teachers understand trauma-informed. They understand foster care. They understand what's going on. They come home. They get the support they need in the afternoon through the dorm and the support there five days a week. And then they get to go home and have a family life on the weekend with their foster family. And so that is something that has never been done before in the entire country. They've had either schools for all foster youth, but many of our foster youth, when we did focus groups, we listened to the people said, I don't want to go to a special school just for foster youth. I want to be a normal kid, but I want people to understand me and I want the support that I need. And I want to know that I have a stable house to live in. So we really took that and built something that meets all of those dynamics and needs, but centers the foster youth in the program as the one who's guiding the process. So how many youth are in this particular, you have one dorm, right? Correct. Doing now. Correct. So it's a brand new program. We actually just started serving youth in October. So as of today, we have five youth placed in the program. We have capacity for 48 but we need more foster homes. So as long as we can find more families who are willing to step up to the plate and willing to take in a youth, that is where we can continue to grow those numbers and help more youth. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. And when you start a program like that, how long does it take to know that it's effective so you can share it with others? love that question. So (laughs) implementation science is like a whole body. And what they really say is three to five years it takes for you to truly, truly know an impact of something. Because if you, especially if you think about a high schooler, right? So if we get someone their senior year, sure, they graduate and they go on, but how do we know what we did impacted them and not their 11 years before, right? If we get someone who's a freshman, we see them all the way through their four years of high school. And then we see how they do that first year in college then we can really say we've probably made a difference. We've done something good. So it's usually about a three to five year for that science to really catch up with the actual practice. But I believe on sharing things as we learn them. So as we're learning this first year, so by October, I hope to have some information out there on what we think is working, what we see is happening and why we've done it and how we've done it and any changes we've made. It's called translational research. It's this whole other component, but it's really just making sure that information is always coming out and you're not just waiting and sitting on it until you know that something has made a huge impact. Because it is an interesting concept. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's not something if someone wanted to 
replicate it, it's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> there was absolutely there. Absolutely. And it should be, right? And we want to do things well and with quality. And so, yeah, you want to be able to know all the components, what worked and didn't work and why they worked. What works here in Orange County may not work the same mm-hmm. in Rhode Island. And so we have to adapt for whatever needs are there. Right. Fascinating. So how many youth, oh, and I don't know if you mentioned this, but the youth in your program, the age range and how many of them are there? Absolutely. So 12 to 18 is kind of the age range. It's really 7th through 12th grade. So there's a little wiggle on each end of what those ages might be. So 7th through 12th grade, and we can have up to 48 youth in our dorm. Other youth can attend the school that don't live in our dorm if they live in the nearby community. So any foster youth in Orange County is able to attend our Samueli Academy Charter High School. Mm-hmm. To live in the dorm, we have 48 beds. Mm-hmm. And your broader programming, what's the age range? Because you mentioned that you have like 20 different programs or something. You've got a lot going on and a lot of youth that you're impacting. So Absolutely. So primarily, Orangewood works with transitional age youth or emerging adults, that 16 to 24-year-old range, as they are leaving their homes in childhood and entering into adulthood. And we work with about 2,000 youth per year on average, and that is through our drop-in resource center that we offer for youth, where they can come and shower, do their laundry, get meals, have groceries, hygiene, counseling, medical services, all on site in one-stop shop. We have housing where we do transitional housing for our youth who are 18 and over. We have survivor services for youth who have experienced trafficking or sexual exploitation. And then we do health and wellness components. So we have about 12 different programs at Orangewood where we serve those youth to try and meet the needs of all of our youth in our community. Wow, that's incredible. And what a value that you're, you know, so they have somewhere to go after they age out. Yes, and they're they're not on the street with their with their bag, their trash exactly. bag. Oh exactly, exactly. I mean that is, and it still is the story. We still have youth who show up that way, unfortunately. And so our goal is immediately trying to find them emergency housing. We just broached a partnership with another nonprofit organization that has twenty five emergency beds. Because as we were talking about, many programs are geared. There's a ton of zero to five programs, and it makes sense. You start early, you do good work, you prevent many things. And then there's kind of like a program for school age, and then it's adult. But we know this 18 to 24 range, that's one, the rapid building in your brain and all the things that are happening physiologically, not to mention psychologically, is happening. And if you don't have a support system and a guiding force for people who are helping you navigate that, and so that's who we really are trying to step in and be. And then we try and connect you to people in their circles or by giving them a mentor, helping them have a social support network to move forward because no one does it alone. If I were to ask you who helped you at 18, you could probably name loving adults in your life who guided you through that process And so we want to find those folks for our youth as well. That's amazing. Do you know, this may not be a fair question, but are there organizations like this in a lot of places these days? Is this not as wonderful as your program, but are there things that target that transition age range in a lot of parts of at least the U.S. right now? 
Yes. So okay. the good news is, is there's a federal law. So Chasey okay. is a federal funding source in law that every child welfare organization. So some places that's state-based, some places that's county-based. You know, we have our weird things in our different states. But every state definitely has to have what they call independent living services and is specifically coaching, kind of mentoring and guidance. Sometimes it looks different place to place, but basically they're supposed to be teaching youth these skills all across the country from age 16 and up. So it should be absolutely available where it's available and what it looks like definitely depends on the state and the population that makes sense that makes sense that's why i said maybe not a fair question yes. but yeah. no that's good because it obviously was not a thing when you were 18. so unfortunately it was oh. <laughs> but yes that's so there's a lot of interesting facets in child welfare in the development and what has happened so the hard part is some sometimes with our agencies we don't have always the reach. And if you think about like urban centers, that's probably most of the time where these services are held. So if you're living in rural areas, you might have less access. If you're living in a certain type of placement, so many, many youth in foster care who are adolescents end up in group care and they are less likely to participate in these programs or relative care are less likely to participate in these programs. So there's all of these different factors that kind of play in into accessibility. Now, I will say they are way more widespread today than they were, but they did exist in 97. That It just still is hard to make sure every youth gets the same fair amount of access. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I'm sure that'll continue to be hard, but you're making inroads. Yes. That's yes absolutely. So what does it feel like to be on this side do you find that some of the foster youth that are in the program, does it help relate to them a little more that you used to be in the program or, you know, what's it feel like to be making so much of a difference now for, you know, kids that are where you were? I mean, I'll be honest, some days it's hard because I feel like I wish there was more change, right? There's always that there's more to do. There's more to do. I tell people I'm working myself out of a job is my goal. That like, if I do a really good job, I won't have a job, right? Right. But that's always my intention and goal. But I do think, you know, every day when I hear our youth stories and the hard part is sometimes they sound too similar to mine. And when you have that 25 year difference and they sound the same, that worries me, right? And that's where I want to do different. And so I know there's 500,000 youth in foster care on any given day. 130,000 of them are adolescents. So knowing every single day, and we serve 2,000 a year, I, I want to do more, right? I, I want to do more. I know that's not reaching the broader population. So I think every day I wake up with this intention to do better and to do more and even being able to come on a podcast like this because maybe if some person hears this they can reach out and we can coordinate and do better uh -huh. so i'm always looking for more but i do feel a kindred if you will to the youth who are in the program i call them my foster sisters and brothers right like they're my little sisters and brothers and they're going through it and i want to make sure that i leave a, pa a path that's paved and well-intentioned to where they can follow if they so choose. And what that looks like for them will be different for everyone. Mm -hmm. But I do every day. And, and I do think the older I get, the harder it is to relate with, you know, in general. But 
I do feel like I'm able to see things through a different lens and I have all of my education, I have all of my work experience, and then I have my personal experience. And I really believe it gives me a different way of seeing things mm-hmm. from the problem to the solution. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. So do you have, you know, from the progress you've made and the impact that you're in a place to make now, any advice or words of wisdom you would share with another woman who just maybe not in the same field, but just wants to make a difference for someone else, a a wrong that they feel like they need to right? I like to say have absolutely unabandoned curiosity. If you have unabandoned curiosity, it will force you to want to learn, to want to grow, to want to know more, to want to expand your horizons. And I feel like for me, that has been a driving force that has allowed me to do more and see more. So for example, taking concepts from the business world and applying them in this world, right? But if I hadn't been curious about how can we do things differently and maybe not the status quo, I don't think I would have learned this. I had some phenomenal mentors who were actually like business people, never social work at all, but they would talk about insight from the outside, right? And innovative design and all of these different concepts and they awakened my life to TED Talks and all kinds of things, but just expanding my horizons and the more curious I got, the more I was able to dig in and really learn things and figure things out. So I would say just that unabandoned curiosity Mm because you're going to learn about yourself and you're going to learn about others and you may find a place in this world where you truly fit and where you feel at home and you can leave your mark. Mm Mm-hmm. Stay curious. That's great. I love it. Well, Shantina, this has been just such an amazing interview. I've learned a lot, but I'm also just very inspired by your drive and your passion to make a difference in those, I keep wanting to say kids, but those young adults' lives. Mm So I commend you for that. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today, because I think there is a lot of inspiration there that our listeners will take to heart and get busy and do what they see needs doing. It was a pleasure, CJ. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you make it a fabulous day. If you're like most women, you have a big dream on your heart and really want to make a positive impact in the lives of others. But self-doubt, fear, or other limiting beliefs often get in your way. What many women don't realize is that the one thing that can catapult them forward is deepening their self-love and self-esteem. So I have a free ebook for you that's really going to help you in this area. It's called 30 Days to Deepen Self-Love, and you can download it at the link in our show notes. Enjoy.